Amen. Well, let's turn together, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, and we will be starting today in verse 12. To tee up our passage for today and to give you a view of the forest for the trees, you might say, of the passage, I'd like to begin uh, with a modern-day classic that I've been reading by a man whose name is Wendell Berry, one called Jaber Crow. I'd recommend most anything that Wendell Berry writes. It brings Christianity to life through the stories of real people. At the beginning of chapter 12, he sums up a good part of our passage for today, and really, he sums up a good part of our life. He talks about what, it, what, what can feel like the, uh, the hell and the purgatory and the heaven that we go through in life, through earthquakes, winds, and sometimes literally fires. Even as we are going through one right now, or have been, and how looking back, you can always see the hand of God in it. But when you're in it, you can wonder sometimes where he is. Here's what Wendell says at the beginning of chapter 12. This is Jaber Crow talking. The story is about him. If you could do it, I suppose, it would be a good idea to live your life in a straight line, starting, say, in the dark wood of error and proceeding by logical steps through hell and purgatory and then into heaven. Or you could take the king's highway past appropriately named dangers, toils, and snares, and finally cross the river of death and enter into the celestial city. But that is not the way I have done it so far. I am a pilgrim, but my pilgrimage has been, a, uh, has been wandering and unmarked. Often what has looked like a straight line to me has been, in fact, a circle or a doubling back. I have been in the dark wood of error, any number of times. I have known something of hell, purgatory, and heaven, but not always in that order. The names of many snares and dangers have been made known to me, but I have seen them often only in looking back. Often I have not known where I was going until I was already there. I have had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me, or I have gone to it, mainly by way of mistakes and surprises. Often I have received better than I have deserved. Often my fairest hopes have rested on bad mistakes. I am an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley, and yet for a long time, looking back, I have been unable to shake off the feeling that I have been led. Make of that, he concludes, what you will. We have been led through it all. We're going to see today how we inevitably, as Wendell Berry says, receive better than we deserve. And we're going to see how our fairest hopes, as he said, can indeed rest on our worst mistakes, thanks to his grace. The worst disasters even, because where sin and suffering increase, as Paul says in our passage for today, grace abounds. And one day, looking back, we'll see that through it all, we have been led through great evil to even greater good, through death to life. Make of that what you will. 
It's in Romans 5, and it starts in verse 12. And get ready, this is a deep passage. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all, all have sinned. For until the law, sin was not in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned through Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift of, uh, arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous, even so, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. But law came, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, this is the heart of the passage, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Believe it or not, there's a real treasure here, but it will take some digging to get there as it applies to our own lives, because this is one of the most difficult passages, indeed, one of the most deeply theological passages that you will find in all of Scripture. Theological, in the sense of seeming anyway, on the surface, theoretical, and maybe a little impractical. You might say that these verses are the playground of theologians, but they are kind of the purgatory of preachers, speaking of the hell and purgatory and heaven we go through in this life. And so in more ways than one, this has been kind of a purgatory of a week for me, not just because of the fires and our mountain cabins and all the rest, uh, um, but because of this passage itself. Preachers who th thought they had it down cold, you know, when it, came to, when it comes to uh, uh, explaining and applying the scriptures really have trouble here, really struggle with Romans 5. So let's have at it because there really is a treasure there will be a treasure at the end of this dig. Paul's been talking about God's master stroke, if you remember, in light of man's moral state. And the bottom line result of that master stroke is what Christ's death and resurrection did to the problem of evil. And the first thing he does is go back to the root of the problem of evil, the problem of sin and suffering in this life. 
And he talks about the source, really, of it all, starting in verse 12, which will be our first point today. And then we'll move on to point two, and that's going to be very simply the surge. The surge through us all of something that's unbelievable. But it starts with the source, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, the sin, uh, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. What he's saying here is this. It was through Adam that sin uh, and death and suffering and all the rest entered the world and spread to all men. That's the source of evil. But before the law was given, God did not judge men for their sin as though they were under the law, as though they knew about the law, because most men were ignorant. We've already seen in Romans 2 that he judges men not unfairly, but, he, but not by the, because he's not judging men by the law, but by other standards, like the conscience that all men have and natural revelation that we have all around us. He judges the Jews by the law, but everyone else by other standards. And then verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Nevertheless, he says, that is, though God didn't judge men as though they were under the law, there was still a penalty. And that penalty was uh, the death of the natural consequences of sin. All men sinned, and so all died. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. That is, everyone didn't sin like Adam did. Only he and Eve ate of the tree. None of his children actually ate the fruit. But every one of his children, you and me included, sinned in some way. And so we all suffer the consequence of sin, which means a whole lot of pain and suffering uh, through earthquakes, wind, and even fires, uh, ultimately death. Then Paul picks it up again. Uh, uh, in verses 18 and 19, where he brings in Christ as the source of something quite different, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, again, Adam's sin got passed on to all men, and we are all willing participants and worthy of condemnation like father like son, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men, which doesn't mean that all men will be saved. No, in the context of the rest of scripture, it means that the life he offers to all men through justification, he means the new life that comes when you get right with God by your own personal belief. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. That is, who, those who accept the offer of Christ will be justified. Paul's overall point here is pretty simple. It has to do with the source, both of sin and of righteousness. Condemnation came because of what Adam did, and pardon Justification comes because of what Christ did. Adam passed on death to all men. Christ offers life to all men. 
And there's a whole lot we could get into here. There are many theories of how we could all fall in Adam and how his sin could get passed on. There's the federalist view, the seminalist view of the imputation of sin, the realist view, the naturalist view. It has to do with the mechanism of what we call imputation of original sin to the whole human race. But we're not going to dwell on the exact mechanism of all that today because all of this is just Paul's warm-up for his main point. And so it'll be our main point too, which moves us, like I said, from the source to point two, the surge of righteousness. From the source of death, Adam, to the surge of life. From the source of guilt to the surge of grace, thanks to Jesus Christ. Because Paul moves from comparing Adam and Christ as the causes of totally different effects to contrasting, and here it is, the magnitude of these effects. And that's where the treasure is. And the main idea is this. Sin increases through Adam, but grace abounds through Christ. Once again, hold that thought. He repeats the same idea twice in verses 15 to 17, and then again in verses 20 and 21. Starting in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. He's contrasting it now. He's contrasting Christ with Adam. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, many died, that is all men died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, much more did what he did abound to the many. Again, it's the contrast that is the heart of this passage. Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, that is Adam. For on one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other, huge contrast, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Adam's mark on the human race came through his single transgression. But God orchestrated something that arose, you know, miraculously through the countless multitude of transgressions like a phoenix rising up from the ashes of death and despair. For if by the transgression of one, verse 17, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Contrast. And then he picks up the contrast again in verse 20. And this is the core of the passage. If you underline anything, underline this. He sums it up. The law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The overall point, well, it's the surge that can come if you're connected to the right source by faith. Sin increases to rule through death, but grace abounds to rule through life. Now, hold that thought. This is quite a contrast, to say the least. And it's Paul's main point, so it's where we're going to dig for the treasure. There's a big difference between the words increase and abound, as we root this now in, the, in what it actually says in the Greek. 
though sin increasing, is no minor thing. So let's start with sin increasing. The word translated increase here is pleonazo in the Greek. It's the word Paul uses, for instance, in Philippians 4, 7, where he talks about the prophet that increases to your account. He's talking about the prophet that would come to this church by being generous with their money. It kind of relates to what Ed started by sharing this morning. The image here that Paul uses in Philippians 4 is of an investment in heaven that's going to amass compound interest and more over the years if you're generous with your money down here. To the point that every dollar you let go of down here will turn into gold and silver and precious stones up there. It's taught all through the scripture. And so he's teaching the Philippians about the tremendous profit that accrues to their heavenly accounts as they give generously on earth. Pleonazo, increase, is a word that connotes a pretty big increase. So we don't dare be stingy down here because there will be greater rewards up there. Some will be richer, some will be less rich. Clearly taught in scripture. But That's a pretty big increase. But there's nothing like the other word that Paul uses here in Romans 5 where sin increased, pleonazo, but grace, and here's the word, abounded all the more. The word that's translated abounded in the English is huper perisu, in the Greek. It's a word that's almost identical to the one that Paul uses in Ephesians 3:20 where he says where he talks about the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. That's huper ex perisu and huper perisu the word that Paul uses here in Romans 5 is second in abundance only to that. And far more than pleonazo increase. Now, on one hand, when Paul says that sin only increases compared to grace, he doesn't mean to to minimize the uh, impact of evil. No, pleonazo is a strong word in and of itself, as we've seen, but not when you compare it to a huper perisu, abounding. The difference is like exponential. We're talking orders of magnitude of difference. It's not just a surge. It's the mother of all surges, one that reverses it all in like this huge cosmic rebound of evil to good. You see, Satan has been working from time immemorial to increase sin. But he can only do it incrementally, you might say, by negative uh, increments. Ever since Adam, Satan has been trying to increase sin through a fallen human race, and we've been willing victims. And it's like it goes from negative one to negative two, and eventually it gets to negative 100, negative 1,000, a million, perhaps even a billion on the sin scale. So it feels to us as we look at the world around us today. We're talking billions, trillions, quadrillions of sin. 
That's what happened, for instance, in the years before Christ died. Satan had been working overtime through the Pharisees. As we know, they got angrier and angrier incrementally, and their hearts got harder and harder. And then scripture tells us that Satan found a place in the heart of Judas Iscariot. And then all the disciples fled and... um, and even the multitudes who were following it ended up, ended up crying, crucify, crucify. After years of patient work, Satan's stock was soaring, or so he thought. How could it possibly get any better than the murder you know, of God's own son by those who he came to save? Any worse. The sin meter was like off the scale. But in three days, it was all reversed. Right? As, as Paul says, death was swallowed up in victory. Sin increased, but grace abounded in and through the very sin of killing the Son of God, so much so that we now thank him for the cross, the worst evil in the history of humanity. And so it will be one day with all that we call evil because the cross and the empty grave is now the very pattern and definition of what God has done and is doing and will do with all the pain and suffering and with the evil that Satan keeps bringing on. Step by step, down through the centuries, sin has been relentlessly marching on like a Nazi army, goose-stepping through the nations, marching even through the lives of those who love him, sometimes in a big way, the lives of those we love as uh, sin and its consequences reign, as Paul says, through death. But sometimes sooner, sometimes later, it all flip-flops after the very pattern of the cross, from death to life, from good to evil, from the infinitely negative to the infinitely positive, and the worst of the worst becomes the best of the best. As grace reigns through righteousness, sweeping up all things in its path and abounding to eternal life. It's like what happens as I was thinking about it this week, when you multiply a negative number by negative one. It's almost a miracle. Or at least it seemed to me when I first learned about this way back in Algebra 1. What happens when you multiply a negative number by a mere negative one? Doesn't matter how large that negative number was. It's all, you know, swept over to the positive side, right? I couldn't believe it when I was studying it. It's like, boom, presto changeo, <laughs> right? Negative 1,000 becomes positive 1,000. A negative million becomes positive million, a negative trillion, positive trillion. However deep your number may plunge, it will rebound as high, in fact, higher. Which has got to be, if you think about it, really frustrating for Satan. It's no wonder he's so mad. I mean, again and again, poof, all of his work turns into God's work. And lo and behold, he's played right into the hands of his sworn enemy. 
All that he's patiently invested over the years, earning compound interest, he thought it was such a big deal. All of it disappears to the other side of the ledger and he's left broke. I'd be mad too. (laughs) You wonder why he keeps trying. He's just making it worse for him. It says in verse 20 that the law came that the transgression might increase. And you think, who is this God? What kind of sovereignty is this that works through, that increases transgression? He intentionally lets things get worse. Has that ever happened to you? that happening in the world around us it, it's a game of chess and like God's the grand master and what a strategy it's like Bobby Fisher way back in the 70s when he sacrificed his king and became the grand master or his queen what are you doing and that was the very move that brought on the win what a strategy ultimately this, this is a king sacrifice right he purposely let Satan get the upper hand. He gave the law that, in, that sin might increase and then boom, when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And all you can say is like Paul does at the very end of all of this, in chapter 11, he sums it up by saying, oh, the depth and the riches of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, Romans eleven twenty five. how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. Now, there's a lot in this that we could unpack, but here's the application. We've already alluded to it, because you see, it didn't just happen at the cross, No, the cross, again, became the very pattern for the lives of all those who love him. The pattern of death to resurrection, of guilt to greater grace, of pain to gain, of increased sin to increased righteousness. And it doesn't just increase, it abounds. And it just doesn't just abound. No, it's abounding uh, evil, super abounding good. It started when we first came to him. And now we bless him for the very pain or the very suffering or the very evil that we got into that in the providence of God increased to bring us to God, to bring us to our senses. And now, like with Joseph in our lives, bad things can increase. In his case, he was sold as a slave, and yet grace Uh, abounded, and he ended up saying, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for a far greater good, a good that could not have happened without all that he learned through those horrible years. It happens all through our Christian lives, individually, and through the history uh, uh, of, uh, of the church. If you study the history of revivals, this is the history of the great revivals in a nutshell, where things always go from really, really bad to really, 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 really good. Culturally, in the lives of individual people, nations are turned around by this. Just look at the history of the first and second great awakenings. In a really short period of time, it happens. Sin increases, grace abounds. It's like 
if you think about it, speaking of the problem of evil, we want God to solve evil kind of like with a big stick in, in a kind of a, a, a Neanderthal way. But what he uses, or a political way, or however, we put all our eggs in some basket. You gotta do something, make them, make it go away. But what he uses, if you think about it, is more like this conductor's baton. Or maybe better, this magic wand. He, he controls the worst of the worst in an orchestral, not a Neanderthal, in an orchestral kind of way. He lets things get even worse. He turns up the heat until it hits a kind of critical mass, and then by some kind of you know, mysterious alchemy, it's transformed into the best of the best. What does it look like as we get the rubber more on the road here? Well, it's what Michelangelo did with his famous statue of David. He chose the block of marble that had long since been forgotten at the, black, at the back of the quarry. All the other sculptors had rejected it because it had this crack running right down the middle, making it unusable, or so they thought. But the master turned that very flaw into the graceful line, the one that now gives David's body his forceful distinction and turned it into a classic which is just what God is doing with a flawed race of men and women like you and me, whatever your tragic flaw may be, whatever tragedy you may have seen. And the greatest picture of this is in Revelation 4 where it said that Christ in all his glory is standing as if slain. Remember that? As if slain. And what does that mean? It means that, the, that he's using the, the very effect of the cross and the wounds that he still has to bring about the glory of the glorified second person of the Trinity. As if slain. It means what we sing. Rich wounds, and this is true for us too, whatever our wounds may be, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified doesn't take them away. He uses them as the central feature of our glory. In beauty glorified, a beauty and a glory that would not have been there without the wounds. As it says in Ecclesiastes, he will make everything beautiful in its time for those who love him. What does it look like? Well, it's a story that I heard from a, a, um, a couple, a daughter and a son-in-law who went through hell on earth before they got married. Tremendous opposition to the marriage on the part of the family, cruelties, so many things. But on the other side of it, there are two years on the other side of it now, they said this. What they learned about working through conflict in that experience is what gave them the skill to be masters of conflict resolution in their own marriage. And to help others through their marriages. And now they wouldn't trade all that for anything. It, it's the heart of their calling. What does it look like? Well, it's like the man you may have heard of who was shipwrecked on a desert island. And when help didn't come, he finally managed to build this rough hut where he put the few things that he was able to salvage from the wreck of the ship. But one day after searching for food, he got back and found his hut going up in flames and some natives running from the scene. 
The worst had happened. All was lost. Some and he had been praying for rescue. Never came, and his hut goes up in smoke. Some answer to prayer. Yet early the next morning, he awoke and he saw a ship in the harbor. And when the captain asked uh, of the ship, asked uh, when he asked the captain how we found him, he said, "Well, we saw your smoke signal. We saw your smoke signal. God's." Smoke signal. So what's gone up in smoke in your life? Even if it's a mountain cabin that's been in the family for 40 years, like many have experienced, like the homes we have in Glen Haven, properties which have been in our family for 70 years. We don't know what'll happen even now. God may have come through, maybe he doesn't, and something even better will happen, right? We've shed tears about the possibility of losing those places. We do grieve in this life. We're not Pollyannas here. God knows we grieve through dark woods and through rivers of death as through hell and purgatory. But we don't have to grieve, Paul said, as those who have no hope. And that makes all the difference in the world. We can be, as he said, like he was as sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Because I can tell you on good authority, whatever goes up in smoke in your life, if you know Christ as your savior, is just It's some kind of smoke signal for some kind of miracle. And it will happen. Just multiply it by negative one. And you'll see. Because that's how God reigns over everything now for him, especially for those who love him. Triumph abounds through tragedy. Death is swallowed up. In victory. And it starts with you personally. Doesn't matter where you are or where you've been or what you've done. You may be headed to hell in a handbasket, but if you just come to Him, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, He'll turn it all around and grace will abound. And you too can be as sorrowful, yes, but always rejoicing. It's just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, what this means is that those who become Christians become new persons. They are not the same anymore, for the old life has gone and a new life is begun. That can be you. Let me conclude with this. It's what John Calvin said. He summed up this passage by saying, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin. That's the heart of it. Than fires are to ruin. Or as I read at the beginning, we have received better than we deserve, to put it mildly. Our fairest hope have rested on bad mistakes. Make of that what you will. I know what I'll make of it. It spells hope no matter what. 
This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Abundant hope, thanks to abundant grace. And if you're a child of God, grace, super abundant grace, will win out in the end. Grace, as Paul says in our last verse in the passage for today, Romans 5.21, grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, we do want to thank you for your abundant grace and pray for anyone here or online who doesn't know Christ as their Savior. Maybe something has gone up in smoke in their lives. I pray that they would see this as your smoke signal to call them to yourself. Help them to acknowledge their sin and to confess their sin that sent Christ to the cross. Thank you that he was resurrected to come in their lives if they just ask him in to turn death into life. Thank you for the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.